Thanks for joining us for this recording from the Southdale Church of the Nazarene in Anderson, Indiana. I'm Pastor Brad Burrow, and I'm glad you're listening. It's Advent season, and we're preparing for the coming of Jesus the Messiah with a series we're calling A Thrill of Hope. Even though at times things in our world might seem almost hopeless, Advent reminds us that God is busy making all things new. Thanks again for listening. Now here's the message. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Luke, to the book of Luke chapter 3. We were there last week, but we returned there again for this Sunday's message. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in your pew. Um, you're welcome to use your phone or your tablet. We like to recommend the Version Bible app. I don't know, it's the end of the year and they start putting out... Uh, they start putting out year-end usage summaries. I, I use Version Bible app a lot, and they just told me 300 and, yesterday it was 348 days so far this year I've read the Bible out of the Version Bible app. So, you know, I, I believe in that one. I think it works well, and I use it a lot. But one way or another, find your way to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading uh, at verse 4. Start reading at verse 4 today. Luke writes, As it is written in the, books, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all people We'll see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, what should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And the people, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his, his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people, and proclaimed the good news to them. Would you pray with me? Father, there is, I believe, a place for us 
in your kingdom work. You ask, and what should we do? We're told where they could find their place. Father, that you would put that question on our heart and mind today. What should we do? And help us to eagerly obey that we might be made into your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the one more powerful than John, who baptizes with your Holy Spirit and with fire. Amen. I'd like to invite you today to step back out to the Jordan River. We were there last week as we read the beginning of this chapter from the Gospel of Luke, and we talked about John's preaching and his message. Uh, last Sunday morning, we went out there where John, the son of Zebedee, the wild-eyed, camel-skin-clad preacher, was preaching to the crowds coming out to him. In case you missed it, you can catch up online. That uh, sermon is now on our podcast and on our website as well. But I want to pick up kind of where we left off last week. Last week, we were introduced to John's message. He's preaching a message of baptism, but it's not just baptism that he's preaching. In particular, he is preaching a message of, he is preaching a baptism of repentance. We noted it was not just a little bit of water on the head, but it was a change of heart that John was preaching. It was an outward and visible sign. Yes, water on the head, but it was an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Repentance that consists of a thoroughgoing change of heart and mind that results in a change of life, a turning from sin and a turning towards God, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, but not merely that. It was also the means, John promised, whereby we could receive more of that grace. In the waters of baptism and in the repentance, in the real repentance that that baptism symbolized, we could experience forgiveness. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a release, a letting go, freedom from what once bound us, from our guilt, from our shame, from our fear, from our regret. We could be set free, turned loose forgiven because we've repented no wonder the crowds were coming out to hear john preach no wonder they were coming out to experience baptism the crowds wanted that release and crowd is precisely the word that luke uses here they were crowds coming out to john the baptist in the Greek language that John is writing, that word achlos, crowd, is frequently translated that way, crowd, or translated as multitude. It refers specifically to an assortment of people assembled together, and the emphasis, the implication of that word is on the variety of those who are gathering. Around here, we like to talk about all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. That was true of the crowd that was coming to hear John preach. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Obviously, it would have included the devout and the expectant. John was preaching uh, about making ready the way for the coming of the Lord and those who were hoping for the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem, they would have been there. 
listening to him preach. It's highly doubtful they would have still been alive here 30-some years after the meeting the infant Messiah in the temple courts, but I could see someone like Anna or someone like Simeon going out. Those who were longing for, waiting for the coming of the restoration of Israel. Anna and Simeon both would have been there listening to John preach that day had they still been alive. Certainly there were others like them. We also know from the parallel story in the Gospel of Matthew that there were other religious types present in that crowd. Matthew chapter 3 notes the presence of Pharisees and Sadducees. The experts in religious law and the priestly class of Jerusalem were there coming to listen to John preach. But along with those paragons of religion and ritual, along with those hopefully expectant and waiting, there were other people in that crowd as well. As we go deeper into the story, we read it. You you heard that there were tax collectors there. Toll collectors, tax farmers, the way the Roman Empire was set up, they, they assessed a tribute required of every country they controlled, every area, every people group had to pay a specific amount of money, but rather than expecting everybody to send it in or deducting it out of everybody's paycheck, they would let somebody bid on the right to collect the taxes. And a tax collector would pay up front what the Roman government said they expected to get from their community or from their area. And once they had paid in advance the taxes of the people, they were then authorized by the Roman government to get that money back any way they wanted. So they would set up tax collecting booths, toll booths along roads, especially at gates and entrances into the city. We talked when we were working our way through the Gospel of Mark about Matthew or Levi sitting at his tax collector, his toll collector's booth, charging tribute, charging tariffs on the fishermen as they brought their catch back in from the Sea of Galilee. There were tax collectors, these sorts of toll collectors, there listening to John preach that day. And not just them, but there are also soldiers there, we're told. And we can't necessarily be sure of their identity. We can't tell from the text itself whether these soldiers were some of Herod's men and therefore likely Jews. Or perhaps even some of them there were some of Pilate's men and the Roman soldiers who who kept the peace in the territory. But while we don't know what background they came from, we do know that John raises the issue of them acting like an occupying force. These soldiers were the sort that would extort money and accuse people falsely, doing the kind of thing that a foreign oppressor would do. All sorts. All, it was a crowd. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds gathered in that day to listen as John preached. It was an, it was an achlos. It was a crowd. And John calls all of them to repentance. He doesn't make any distinction between the religious and the righteous and the the tax collectors and the soldiers. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds are called to repent, to turn from their sin, and to trust in God and experience the freedom and forgiveness that He brings. Talked about the way of hope. We've been talking about the way of hope in this series Last week we said that repentance is the first step down this way of hope. 
But there's more to that journey than just repentance. It it takes more than just a sense of, of godly regret and a wish that things were different to follow the way of hope. With repentance comes release. But with that freedom, God is also expecting obedience. And John seems to sense as he's preaching that some of the people in the crowd are just looking for an easy way out. They're coming to experience this baptism of repentance in the hopes that it will give them the freedom, the the forgiveness, the release that they long for. But they're not really interested in changing anything. They're simply worried about escaping wrath. And so John calls them on. You brood of vipers, he says. You bunch of snakes slithering out here in the hopes of escaping the wrath of God. If I could expand on John's words, I think what he tells them is don't run out here thinking that a dip in the water is going to set everything to right. Don't think just coming out here for this this ritual, this baptism, will fulfill your duty to God and and secure your place in His kingdom. Don't Don't just come out here fleeing wrath. God expects your lives to be different. If this repentance is real, God expects you to go from this place changed. He expects your lives to begin to produce the fruit that repentance brings. And if your life doesn't produce the fruit of repentance, John says, you can expect judgment. He uses a couple of metaphors for judgment in this passage. He talks about an axe already being laid at the root of a fruitless tree, cut down and thrown into the fire. He also paints the picture of a, of a winnowing fork in the hand of a thresher separating the useful wheat from the useless chaff that the wheat might be gathered in and preserved. Saved, you might say. Chaff thrown on the fire and burnt. Produce fruit, John says. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance or you can expect judgment. Of course, that begs a question, doesn't it? If we have to produce fruit, if there is a work that now that we've been set free, we are expected to do, what are we supposed to do? So at this point, we can go back to Isaiah's prophecy that we started our reading today from. John is preaching about the work that is expected of the people of God. This work is a ready-making preparing the way for the salvation that is coming to all people. God is on the move. The Lord is coming. He is bringing salvation with Him. Isaiah says, soon all flesh will see it, and we are called to the work of making ready His way. Of course, if the way is going to be made ready, some things have to change. Some things that are regarded too highly will need to be humbled Some things that are treated too lowly will need to be lifted up. There are some crooked ways in our lives and in our world that need to be straightened out. There are some rough places in our life and in our world that need to be 
smoothed out. If we're going to see and participate, Isaiah says, if we're going to see and participate in the salvation that the Lord is bringing, the landscapes of our lives and the landscape of our world needs to be radically changed. What about you? High places in your life the things that you reckon far too highly that need to be humbled before the coming of the King. Where are the low places, the broken down and the beaten up places of your life that He wants to uplift? Where does the course of your life run crooked? Where are the rough patches in your life, in your relationships with God and with others that He desires to smooth out if we're going to see and participate in the salvation that the Lord is bringing, John says, the landscape of our lives and the landscape of our world needs to radically change. And some of you are excited by this thought. Some of you are longing for a change. The notice that life could be different is one you find inspiring. You're tired of the status quo. You long for something to be different. Perhaps you're even desperate for a change. So John's message comes as good news. But others of us probably are daunted by John's message. This is a big work he is calling us to. A monumental path. Humbling high places lifting up lowly places, straightening out crooked ways, smoothing out rough ways. Some of us realize today that in order to do that, everything, everything is going to have to change. And to be honest, we wonder if, if it's even possible to do something like that. And if that's possible, how does one go about it? Throughout human history, People have attempted to bring change in a lot of different ways. If you follow the story of humanity through the years, you know that some people have sought to bring about change by, by military might. Whether we're talking about the Maccabean Revolt, or the American Revolution, or the Chinese War of Liberation, or the Russian Red October, you can find examples throughout history of those who have sought to upend the status quo, to change the way things are by, by taking up arms and fighting. Some have sought to do it through political action and forging strong political alliances. I don't know about you, I'm old enough to remember 1994 and the Republican contract with America. Or all of us should be old enough. We just lived through 2018 and the year of the women. Both are examples of those who sought to, to transform culture by political action, by rallying the party, working to change things through, through political change, work out a platform, get out your message, get out the vote. Bring the change you want to see. Still others have done, attempted to do it through the years by means of protest. I, I, think, of, I think here of, of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the Velvet Revolution that brought down the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia, 
or the dignity revolution that toppled the regime in Tunisia. Raising awareness cements discomfort and and galvanizes the resolve of people to change things. And sometimes change comes because of protest. Still others have sought to fix what's wrong in society by opting out of society altogether. By forming their own new society. Ascetics in the monastic traditions have sought to escape the corruption in the world caused by its evil desires by by distancing themselves from the world altogether. Aromatic monks retreating into seclusion and and living lives of solitude. Cenobitic monks retreating into community, new communities that follow distinctive countercultural orders cloistered away from the larger world. Military might, political action, protest, retreats. Throughout human history, people have attempted to bring change a lot of different ways. So when John announces that we need to make ready the way for the Lord to prepare the way for His salvation, it's understandable that the people that were listening to Him that day would have had questions about it. They would have wondered, how are we supposed to accomplish this? Probably in that crowd, there were people whose natural instinct would have been to follow all of those different paths. We know the Sadducees were there. They were experts at forging political alliances with the powers that be. The Pharisees were there. Their entire lives were lives of protest, where their their intense their intense dedication to legalism and living lives that were different were sought to to highlight, to demonstrate what was wrong in the world around them. We know Pharisees and Sadducees were there. Likely there were also a zealot or two, attracted by John's fiery preaching and ready to take up arms against the Roman Empire. And out in the wilderness, one would expect to find some hermits, the Essenes who who sought to escape the corruption in the modern world by moving out to the wilderness and forming their own new community there. There were likely, in that audience, listening to John preach, people who who would have assumed that the way to change the world were any of those strategies. And so their question, what should we do, shouldn't surprise us. What is surprising is what John does suggest that they do. What is John's strategy for turning the world upside down? Share. Share. Do you have two shirts? And shirts here is the right word. I know some of the translations like to translate it as coat, bringing to mind the cloak or the outer garment, but this is not, the word Luke uses here of John's preaching is not the Himatian, the, the, the outer garment, the, the, the cloak that Jewish law said you could not take and pledge to secure a loan because most people only had one of them. He's not talking about the outer garment here. It is, it is the chiton, the tunic, the inner garment that's worn beneath the outer garment, the, the tunic that's worn against the skin. We'd say the t-shirt that John's talking about. T-shirts. Find somebody who's shirtless and share. Or food. Do you have 
And I know that the King James here translates it as meat, but the word is broma, a Greek word taken, literally a Greek noun taken from the Greek verb that means to eat. It's anything that you put in your mouth to sustain your body. This is not fancy food. This is not a specific kind of food. This is anything you might happen to eat. Do Do you have something to eat? Well, if you have food, find somebody who doesn't and share. Talk about an egalitarian invitation. Everyone can participate in that kind of kingdom. Trust me, there is someone out there who has less than you do. I don't care how little you have. There's someone out there who has less than you do. Find them, John says. And share. That's how you change the world. About uh, This is my imagination, and maybe it's running wild here, but in my imagination, about that time, a hand goes up in the back of the crowd. Uh, a voice calls out, oh, John, <laughs> I hear you say that everyone can participate in this kingdom, that we can all share, that there's somebody out there who has less than us. Any of us could share, but are you sure you mean anyone? Are you sure you mean everyone can participate? Even us? As John squints out across that crowd, he eventually makes out the hand that is raised and sees that as someone wearing the robes of a tax collector. Someone who is literally, personally invested in the Roman system of tribute and oppression a local agent of the Roman tax system, entrusted with the responsibility of making sure the empire gets its cut. Are you sure there's a place for everyone? Even us tax collectors? They ask. And what does John tell them? I know what I would have told them. You are in an evil business. Quit! Seriously, quit! Pick up! Walk away! Don't look back! (laughs) Turn your back on Rome and never return! But surprisingly, for a wild-eyed, fire-and-brimstone preacher, that's not what John said. You notice that? This is a part of it I can't believe. This is where John surprises. John sends the tax collectors back to work. John says, you woke up this morning a tax collector. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you'll still be a tax collector. Only tomorrow be a different kind of tax collector. Don't use the system to pad your pockets. Treat people fairly. And collect only what's required. Go back to the same job you had when you woke up this morning. Just do it different. And what about us, the soldiers ask. I imagine they begin to have hope because if there's a place for tax collectors, maybe there's a place for them as well. And again, John does not call on them to quit the army. He does not call them to violate their oaths or abandon their posts. He does not call them to lay down arms and leave the places that they serve. No, he simply calls them to still be soldiers, only be a different kind of soldier. Go back to that same job you've always had, but... 
do it differently. This time, don't extort, don't force people to pay you behind the scenes or under the table. Don't falsely accuse people. Be content with your pay. That's how you turn the world upside down. This call of ready-making, of bringing down the high places and lifting up the low places, this call of straightening out the crooked ways and smoothing out the rough ways, this is a call to do something extraordinary. If we're going to do that, everything has to change. It is a daunting task, but John says it is accomplished through thoroughly ordinary means. It's not going out and attempting to do the extraordinary that no one's ever thought of. It's as simple as going back to work tomorrow the same place you left yesterday. Only going back to work different. It's about seeing the needs around you. And sharing. And as John preaches... something incredible begins to happen. It's hard to notice in the English translation. I tried to call attention to it as we read together. But as John preaches, something something happens. We're told by Luke that the word of the God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and so he began to preach. In verse 7, we see that the multitudes, the crowds, the achlos are coming out to be baptized by John. All kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds united only by this one thing. They desire to hear about this forgiveness that John is preaching about. They desire to experience this release that John is promising. These people from all kinds of people, from all kinds of backgrounds, righteous and religious, tax collector and soldier alike, come out in this motley bunch of people. The crowds come to John as he's preaching. If you follow down to verse 10, we see it's the achlos, it's the crowd that begins asking questions. All sorts of people coming from all sorts of different backgrounds asking, well, what does this mean for me? And what does this mean for me? And what does this mean for me? And John starts answering them. And then verse 15 tells us that the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. The achlos, the crowd, comes to hear John preach. The achlos, the crowd, comes to ask John questions about what his preaching means for them. And somehow through all of that, this achlos, this crowd, becomes the laos, the people. That might not mean a whole lot to us in English. The Jewish world, laos was a significant term. And here I'm hesitant to make too much of this because John or Luke doesn't always use the word laos in this way, but in particular, at the outset of Luke's gospel, 
the laos doesn't just mean people in general. Laos specifically means the people. As in the people of Israel. The people of God. The covenant people of God's kingdom. In Luke 1, the people... The covenant people were gathered outside the sanctuary at the temple as Zechariah went in to pray. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah was told that his son would go forth in the spirit and the power of, of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And in doing so, he would make ready a laos, a people prepared for the Lord. Also in Luke chapter 21, the people are still outside watching and waiting as, as Zechariah tarries in the temple. Later in that same chapter, Mary begins to sing, excited about this message of hope that the angel has given her. She says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness for the forgiveness. This is in Zechariah's song. Knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. In the opening chapters of Luke, Luke chapter 1, 2, and 3 specifically, Laos always refers to the covenant people of God. A people who are united by their faith and united in obedience to the one that has called them out of darkness and into light. And as John is preaching this multitude who when they showed up there's no way you would assume there was any unity there i mean there are all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds as many different varieties of people as you could find in judea this crowd as john preaches begins to form into the people there is a place among the people for anyone and everyone who will turn and produce the fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a huge task, an extraordinary task, a great task that John calls us to, this task of changing our world. And to people like me, it's intimidating because it is a big job and I'm not sure I'm big enough to do it. Yet John's preaching reminds me that great things very seldom happen when extraordinary people set out to do what others say can't be done. Every once in a while something happens that way. An extraordinary person will decide to do the impossible and they will accomplish it. But great things, great things rarely happen when extraordinary people set out to do the things that, that everyone thinks can't be done. Far more often great things happen when thoroughly ordinary people resolve themselves to do what they can. Can you share? Sure you can. Can you go back to the same job you've always had, but, but go back different? Sure you can. And when you resolve yourself to do what you can, God's kingdom begins to come. And His will begins to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This has been a live recording from our Sunday morning service. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to join us, we gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at 530 West 53rd Street in Anderson, Indiana. 
You can find out more about us online at SouthdaleNAZ.com. Again, that website is SouthdaleNAZ.com. Now go into peace and be a blessing.